Good morning. Be seated. In the case of uh, Her Majesty the Queen against Lobla Financial Holdings, Inc., for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Eric A. Noble, Elizabeth Chasson, for the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Baba Forson, Forson, I'm sorry, for the respondent, Lobla Financial Holdings, Inc., Al Meji, and Puja Mihailovic, for the intervener, Canadian Bankers Association, Matthew G. Williams. Mr. Noble. And hear you. No, we cannot hear you. I'm sorry. Can hear something. Just having. Uh, yeah, okay, it's okay. Now we hear you. It's okay? Yep. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Chief Justice. Uh, if everyone can hear me now. Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, to prevent the erosion of our tax base attributable to the holding by Canadians of investments offshore in low tax jurisdictions. Parliament enacted the Foreign Accrual Property Income, or FAPI, rules in the Income Tax Act. The FAPI rules tax Canadian resident taxpayers. I'm sorry, sir. Sorry. Is it possible to speak louder or put your volume uh, up a little bit? Because uh... Uh, I'll try to do so. Okay. Um, the FAPI rules tax Canadian resident taxpayers on the income of their controlled foreign affiliates. These rules have an anti-avoidance purpose. The crux of this case is the determination of what was the controlled foreign affiliate Glen Huron's business and with whom was that business principally conducted. Glen Huron was a financial institution whose business was to make money from money. Over the course of a decade, Glen Huron continuously acquired funds from the Loblaw Group and used those funds to invest in short-term investments, derivatives, and intercompany lending. This case is not about whether expenses are current or capital in nature or what the correct test is for computing profit. The case centers on the interpretation of a narrow exception within the FAPI regime. The Federal Court of Appeal, with respect, failed to properly interpret the FAPI provisions and favored an interpretation that excluded from its consideration an essential part of Glen Huron's business, its acquisition of funding, in a manner not supported by the text, context, or purpose of the legislation. The result, as the Federal Court of Appeal itself acknowledged in its reasons, is inconsistent with the intent of the FAPI regime. By contrast, the Tax Court of Canada properly considered the text, context, and purpose of the provisions by considering all aspects of Glen Huron's business to arrive at its factual conclusion that Glen Huron's business was principally conducted with non-arms-linked persons. 
The Federal Court of Appeal, I submit, arrived at the outcome that it did as a result of two major errors in its reasoning. Firstly, the case law on which it relied, Canadian Pioneer, Montreal Coke, and Bennett and White, were, with respect, not relevant to the issue before it. Secondly, the Court of Appeal's analysis was based on an inconsistent view of what Glen Huron's business was. Glen Huron's funding was taken into account for one purpose, but then ignored completely for another purpose in applying the statute. The proper outcome after correcting for the Court of Appeal's errors, I submit, is to reinstate the decision of the trial judge. The trial judge found that Glen Huron's activity amounted to the managing of an investment portfolio for its parent group. These are precisely the sort of circumstances in which the FAPI rules were intended to apply. So onto the first major error, the Federal Court of Appeal relied on, I submit, irrelevant case law to conclude that the business conducted by Glen Huron did not encompass funding received from its parent group. The trial judge made a finding that Glen Huron's business consisted of receipts of funds and uses of those funds. He appropriately took both the acquisition of funding and uses of that funding into consideration in applying the arm's length requirement or arm's length test. The Federal Court of Appeal excluded Glen Huron's acquisition of funding in reliance on this court's decision in Canadian Pioneer and on Montreal Coke and Bennett and White. Canadian Pioneer deals with a very different issue and I submit has no relevance to a determination under the FAPI rules. It was not relied on by either party at trial or in the Federal Court of Appeal. The question before the Court of Appeal was not what is a bank or banking business under Canadian law, but rather what was Glen Huron's business and was that business conducted principally with non-arm's length persons? Mr. Mr. Noble, your, your position rests on, um, on the fact that the Federal Court of Appeal did not consider the capitalization, the funds received, um, the equity, um, the, the, rather than focusing on what it is to carry on business. The law's always distinguished between capitalization and business as two different concepts. I want to ask you about what do we make of CRA's guidance to taxpayers in 1995, and, and again, I think in 2000, that, and I'm quoting here, the fact that a foreign affiliate receives funding to carry on its income earning activity by way of debt or equity from a related party would have little, if any, relevance to the arm's length test. Does that not tell us something about how those terms were understood? Um, I, I believe the, uh, the letter to which you refer was from uh, Justice to, uh, uh, to a letter from 1995, and the comments in that letter uh, were not necessarily pertaining to financial businesses or to a banking business. Uh, it was not a letter for general consumption. It was um, an administrative response to a specific taxpayer's request. Um, and the letter itself noted that a full examination of all the relevant facts would need to be performed. 
So, um, well, in that case, why don't you address the underlying principle, which is that there, what we're looking at is, was it carrying on business principally with arm's length companies? And does carrying on business include how a company is capitalized? That's what brings it within the affiliated companies, brings it within the scheme. If it was as simple as that, then why wouldn't the act simply say that was enough to make it subject to this? Uh, Justice Karakatsanis, the, the wording in the arm's length requirement uh, is business conducted principally with, and I'd submit that uh, in the case of a financial business such as Glen Huron, uh, the funding that it acquires uh, is an integral part of the business um, and has to be taken into account in order to arrive at uh, a, uh, a reliable um, understanding of the nature of its business and with whom its activities are conducted. I guess Mr. On Noble, that point, Mr. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask you because would the funding have to be received in the tax years in question? even if we uh, accept your uh, interpretation. Justice, no, I think if the funding is received uh, in a prior year, but it, it continues to be used in a subsequent year, then the funding is still relevant in the overall factual inquiry that the uh, business conducted uh, wording in the arm's length test uh, directs the court to conduct. Um, so the arm's length test is not a, a simple mechanical calculation uh, adding up amounts uh, of funding received in, in one year and, and uh, taking account of revenues generated in the same year, but it, it uh, directs the court to uh, look at the entirety, the totality of the, uh, of the business, um, including uh, its financing arrangements uh, over the course of, of uh, time. Mr. Noble, my point is the following. If we accept your position about the funding, it means that a uh, controlled foreign affiliate will never be eligible to uh, the exemption. Because uh, forget Canadian pioneer, I agree that it is a separation of power case, but uh, just based on the normal corporate commercial law, uh, it's clear that an, an affiliate is always funded by the mother company? Uh, Justice Cote, I, I would differ with you in, in the sense that uh, voting control, um, which a parent may have over a controlled foreign affiliate, doesn't necessarily involve um, provision of all funding. Um, a controlled foreign affiliate could still have um, arm's length funding provided to it, even though it's controlled by its parents. So the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. So uh, I would I would disagree with with that proposition. Um, I, I want to pull you back just to your answer to Justice Karakatsanis because I think that was I think that, I assume that that's your response to your friend's submission and his factum that. That, that your interpretation that you're urging on us makes no commercial sense because this isn't just a one-time determination. The arm's length test is applied in each taxation year. So your, your friend says in a year where all the corporate capital comes from the parent corporation, um, 
then, then you'd fail the arm's length test, but in a year when no corporate capital is received, even if everything else that's going on is, is the same, then you pass the test. Your argument is, well, no, if you're still using the capital, uh, then, the, then, then you use that whenever, I think your term was whenever it's convenient. Did I get that right? Um, Justice Brown, I, I, what I meant to say, if, uh, if I, I don't recall using the word convenient, but yeah. uh, if I did, uh, uh, what I meant I may, to I say... I may have that wrong, but... but uh, yeah, I, I, what I meant to say is that the funding uh, needs to be taken account in the arm's length requirement, uh, not just in the year it may have been provided or received, but in years uh, subsequently in which it was used. Uh, so funding may not be entirely used up or exhausted in the year in which it's received. It can continue to be relevant as it was in Glen Huron's case over a course of years. So uh, the totality of the business needs to be examined, um, not just uh, taking... So, so, um, so just to be clear, in a year when Glen Huron is not receiving capital, it is still, in your judgment, conducting business with the parent that provided capital long ago when it's conducting all its other business. It, it could be. Yes, Justice Brown, that, that could well be the case. The business conducted okay, uh, could involve it. the funding received from the parent in prior years if that funding still continues to be used by the CFA. I say that makes no commercial sense to me, but, but anyways. Um, well, in, uh, I'll just, I'll proceed with my, um, uh, my presentation and, uh, perhaps we can come back to that justice Brown. Uh, um, I mean, the, that's just not how business works. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, I, I, well, I, the, the, I, I just the think test looks to business conduct astonishing submission and, um, it, the test looks to what the nature is of the business conducted and and um, and it's, it's conducting business with the people with whom it's conducting business even accepting your argument that in a year when it receives capital from a parent corp that it is conducting business with that parent corp you say in a year when it's doing nothing with the parent corp just using the money to do all its other business it's still doing business with the parent corp and that is utterly nonsensical. Um, but well, I have an open mind. I, I, thank you, Justice Brown. The, um, I, I submit that the, the trial judge um, made a finding that Glenn Heron's business consisted of receipts of funds and uses of those funds. Um, the Federal Court of Appeal excluded uh, the acquisition of funding in reliance on Canadian Pioneer, Montreal Coke, and Bennett and White. We've already uh, addressed Canadian Pioneer, it deals with a different issue. As for Montreal Coke and Bennett and White, they likewise deal with quite a different issue, uh, which was the calculation of a taxpayer's profit from its business and whether certain expenses were deductible. Now, the businesses involved in Montreal Coke and Bennett and White were not financial businesses, and the two cases date from a time when the statutory scheme was quite different. The uh, Income War Tax Act, which was the statute at issue in both cases, drew a distinction between 
capital used in the business to earn the income and the process of earning profits. But the wording with which we are concerned in the arm's length requirement is business conducted. The Federal Court of Appeal relied on Montreal Coke and Bennett and White to hold that there is a well-established distinction between a corporation's capital structure and its income generating operations. And although that may have been a relevant distinction for purposes of determining whether an expenditure was on capital account or was a current expense under the scheme for profit calculation as it then read, it is not, I submit, a relevant distinction in construing and applying the words business conducted in the arm's length requirement. No calculation of the controlled foreign affiliates profit is being performed. Uh, the arm's length requirement has to do with whether a business satisfies the financial institution exception to the definition of investment business, which will in turn determine whether the controlled foreign affiliates income from that business will be foreign accrual property income. The phrase business conducted, I submit, is not limited to income generating activity, such as Glen Huron's acquisition of short-term securities and participation in swaps. Business conducted is a broad term. The starting point is the definition of business in subsection 248.1 of the Income Tax Act, which defines business in very broad terms. It includes a profession, calling, trade, manufacture, or undertaking of any kind, whatever. The, the broad definition of business in subsection 248.1 of the Act uh, certainly, I submit, includes the activities which made up the offshore banking business uh, carried on by Glen Huron. There is uh, nothing in the definition of business in subsection 248.1 to suggest that business is restricted to income generating transactions or that it concerns itself only with the use of any funds received. May I intervene and ask you a question here? I mean, you've asked us to basically reinstate the trial judge's decision, um, but it seems to me that the, the trial judge has accepted that how business conducted with is, is uh, subject to the reference to the applicable foreign law, i.e. The, the law in Barbados. And I, I guess I, I'm, I'm questioning, how do you answer the criticism? that that would then leave the definition uh, in Canada subject to the variance of what is occurring in foreign jurisdictions. Isn't that a methodological issue that um, it prevents us from dealing with the trial judge's uh, judgment? Uh, I.e. an error. <laughs> I, I'd submit not, Justice Martin. Uh, the trial judge uh, took the provisions of the foreign law into consideration in identifying what the business was. Um, but I, I would point out uh, that uh, the statute already defers to foreign law and in so far as um, uh, the definition of foreign bank uh, defers to whether the, the entity is recognized as a bank under the laws of a foreign jurisdiction. Uh, so to the extent that foreign law is relevant in um, assisting the court to identify what the business consists of, um, there, there isn't um, anything particularly new in that, in, in that uh, foreign law is already uh, deferred to in terms of whether 
But the isn't that just? But it's not deferred to. It's whether or not there is uh, a, a precondition that's been met under the statute. Is it a foreign bank? And and you can sort of say yes, it is because according to the laws of the residence, um, it, it it has received the requisite licenses. Uh, but is that the same thing as then looking and saying what's the? How do we? Uh, under a Canadian uh, tax provision, when we're talking about the business conducted with, shouldn't we have a made in Canada a kind of definition of that, that that's uh, applicable regardless of, of what um, other foreign jurisdictions may say about business? Well, we do have a made in Canada version. We have the definition of business and then identifying what a taxpayer's or a CFA's business is, is largely a factual inquiry. Um, and one looks to the activities that are performed. And in this instance, uh, Glenn Huron's activities were circumscribed by what the foreign law permitted it to do. Uh, but one still needs to look at uh, all of the facts and, and um, determine w just what the nature of its business is. But may um, I ask, the trial judge here put a, a, a significant emphasis on the competition requirement. Um, and, and the Federal Court of Appeal says that's an error. Could you comment on that? Uh, yes, Justice. I submit that uh, there was no error um, committed by the trial judge in uh, examining the extent to which Glenn Huron engaged or not in, com in competition. The um, uh, meaning of arm's length uh, business activity looks uh, under the tests enunciated in decisions of this court, such as Swiss Bank and McClarty, to uh, whether there are, is evidence of ordinary commercial dealings between parties acting in uh, their own interests. And so uh, in order to uh, uh, perform the weighing exercise the judge was called upon to make, he looked uh, in the record to see whether there is evidence of uh, such kinds of dealings by Glenn Huron. And competition is a perfect uh, example of um, uh, parties uh, engaging in ordinary commercial dealings and, and acting in their own interests. And he made the findings that he did, which was there was no competition engaged in. And uh, that informed his uh, uh, weighing uh, analysis uh, of the nature of the business and, and uh, whether it was conducted principally with non-arms length parties or not. Mr. Noble, uh, on this competition aspect, what do you answer to the argument made by the respondent that uh, it's not a relevant issue because when Parliament had found necessary to consider more closely the actual level of competition, uh, instead of simply assuming it, it has done so expressly like section 95 uh, 2.4 of the Income Tax Act? Uh, yes, Justice Cote. Um, I would uh, agree with the trial judge's um, explanation of the presence of those words in 95.2.4. He uh, explained it as 95.2.4 uh, addresses uh, a more specific situation calling for a more specific language, uh, but it's not an indication that um, evidence of competition should be regarded as irrelevant in the weighing exercise to be performed under the arm's length test. 
it, it still could be relevant, but it's just not been made an explicit requirement. And uh, I submit the judge didn't make it an explicit requirement. Can I and ask, I, can I ask, uh, can I follow up on Justice Cote's question? The, the, uh, obviously the business of some financial institutions involve competitiveness for deposits from their customers. So the receipts are relevant to determining their business activities. But it strikes me that that's not the kind of circumstance we're in here. And that while the cases that you mentioned, Canadian Pioneer, Montreal Coke and Bennett, are awkward in some respects as direct authorities, there is a hint in all of those cases, there's certainly the latter too, that corporate law makes clear, unlike the a commercial bank competing for deposits, an ordinary financial institution here that simply receives a subscription for equity from one of its shareholders, is that's not that distinction between capitalization of a corporation that allows it to conduct business and the activities of the business itself are different. And that's, that's hinted at it in, in, in at least two of those cases. I'm wondering if that's helpful here. And it, it helps us um, make sense of when competition is necessary on the receipt side. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure um, that, um, well, perhaps I can address your question this way, Justice Kassirer. Um, the, the respondent has asserted that funding received by a CFA, such as Glen Huron, through deposits would constitute part of the business conducted by the CFA, and th that assertion can be found in paragraph 18 of the respondent's reply to the intervener's facta. Um, and and, and in, in such a scenario, uh, it might be that the, uh, the CFA is uh, competing for deposit monies from arm's length parties with other entities. There is the, um, the respondent says, however, that funding obtained uh, by such a CFA from its parent for shares issued to the parent or uh, monies received uh, by way of loans from uh, related companies within its group would not be part of the business conducted by the CFA. And I submit that in the context of uh, a case such as this involving a, a, a business uh, of making money from money, uh, there's no justification for drawing a distinction between funding obtained through deposits and funding obtained from non-arms length parties through issuing shares or from loans. If deposits are to be included in applying the arms length test, all types of funding need to be included, not just funding from arms length depositors or lenders, which will uh, assist Glenn Huron to meet the arms length test, but funding from all sources. Uh, otherwise the test will not um, reflect the totality of the uh, business. Um, so uh, in view of the breadth of the term business and business conducted, I submit there's no justification for including some types of funding, but excluding others. All funding should get included in the assessment of with whom Glenn Huron's business um, was conducted. And um, the, the funding, to, to your question, Justice Kassir, the, the funding could involve 
competition by the CFA with other entities for funding or not. I, I don't know that competition is, um, is, is a determining uh, factor. Uh, it, it, it's relevant as the trial judge um, um, explained and, and as I've attempted to uh, assist the court in explaining, but it's not a requirement. I wonder um, if the difference between um, receiving deposits and receiving capital is who is and who isn't a customer. Right? Deposits are from customers. Capital funding is from the parent. Maybe that's a distinction that might have some legal significance. Um, it might, Justice Brown. Um, although in the case of a, a business uh, which just makes money from money, um, the uh, uh, the money, uh, whether irrespective of the source of the funds, it, it is used in the same way, and that was the uh, the case here. Um, and it's it's something to be borne in mind that regardless of the source of Glen Huron's funds, those funds were used in the same way in the business uh, as described by the trial judge. Money is fungible, and capital is as well. The respondent acknowledged uh, as much at trial, and, and that can be found at tab 10 of the appellant's condensed book. Uh, financial businesses such as Glen Huron use funds acquired from deposits and funds acquired through loans received or shares issued in the same way. And in order to uh, arrive at a, uh, a correct understanding of the nature of the business it conducted, one has to look at uh, all the funds received. And the words business conducted in the arm's length test, I submit, are sufficiently broad as to include all methods used to fund the business. Um, and I was mentioning earlier uh, before some questions that uh, the, uh, uh, the um, to suggest uh, that business conducted uh, is limited to income earning transactions as uh, the Court of Appeal appears to have uh, believed. Um, this involves reading in a limitation to the phrase business conducted, which isn't there and which is inconsistent with the context and purpose of the provision. If Parliament had intended to make the arms Lake test a quantitative test based on income or gross revenue generated by the business, it would have done so explicitly uh, there are other provisions in the FAPI rules which do impose an earnings or revenues-based test. For example, uh, paragraphs 95.2, 8.1, 8.2, 8.3, and 8.4, which were added to the Act at the same time as the definition of investment business. And these examples of a quantitative type test can be found at tab six in the appellant's condensed book. The uh, Federal Court of Appeals decision has the effect of transforming what is a broadly based qualitative test for what is business conducted into a narrower quantitative type test that is focused on revenues and whether those revenues are received from arm's length or non-arm's length persons. Um, and it did so in reliance on uh, statements made by this court in Montreal, Coke and Bennett and White. But uh, this court has on numerous occasions suggested that caution be exercised before applying general statements of principle made in the context of a decision arising under one section of the act 
the cases arising under different sections of the act. And uh, I can refer to the GlaxoSmithKline decision of this court in 2012, um, in which such a caution was expressed about applying uh, general statements from Singleton and Shell, which dealt with the interest deductibility provision. And uh, this court um, concluded that those statements ought not to be applied in matters involving a different provision, in that case, the transfer pricing provision in subsection 69.2. And the extracts from that decision uh, can be uh, found at tab five of our uh, condensed book. In, in the case before this court today, this court is faced with a determination of what was the business carried on by Glen Huron as a foreign bank, and was it a business conducted principally with non-arms length persons? The statements from Montreal Coke and Bennett and White uh, speak to a, a different question, a computation of profit from a business, and they are, I submit, not of assistance uh, on this appeal. They're, not, they're and, not of direct assistance, but they do speak to the relationship between a shareholder and a corporation that runs right through corporate law. And, and that's what's, speaking for myself, slightly surprising with your p position for understanding conducting a business when, when, when a shareholder receives a subscription for equity. It's, one typically doesn't think of that as conducting business with the corporation. One's investing in it, but, but not conducting business in it. And I think that's the spirit in which those cases might be relevant here. I agree with you that, that strictly speaking, this is not a case on what is an outlay on account of capital. But I think that the, the, the spirit in which those, Kate, that Bennett and, and Montreal Coker cited is, is different, I think, here. And, and, and that's, that doesn't fall afoul of the idea of misquoting one interpretation of one provision of an act for another. It seems to me it's speaking to a general principle of corporate law. Um. Well, one, one further comment about Montreal Coke is, is uh, uh, the expenses at issue there are, are now dealt with quite differently under the statute. And, and this was uh, the subject of a, an observation by Justice Binney in a, in a decision called Imperial Oil from this court in 2006. Uh, and so statements of general principle from Montreal Coke ought to be approached with some caution in, in light of um, the very, uh, uh, significant changes to the statute that have occurred since then. Um, but I, I would come back to my um, point about financial businesses uh, which uh, deal with uh, money and just make money from money are, are perhaps in a different category um, and uh, funding uh, obtained by such a business is always going to be relevant in, in uh, arriving at an understanding of the nature of of its business and, and uh, uh, funding from a parent uh, or non-arms linked parties um, must be taken into consideration in, in arriving at um, an understanding of the totality of the business conducted. And, and I uh, would reiterate that the wording is business conducted, not conducting business. And uh, this I suggest um, is something to bear in mind. Uh, we're looking at the business um, and uh, trying to identify um, what it is. What, what do you say to your colleagues who, who suggest that you've maybe um, 
oversimplified the competing policy interests that are expressed in the FAPI principles. When you speak of making money for money or treating Glen Huron as a kind of a, a purse in the Barbados for, for the principles of Loblaws, that you're, you're perhaps neglecting the fact that in its, um, not just general rules, but the exceptions to its general rules, Parliament is seeking to, to balance the taxation of passive income in some circumstances as FAPI with other objectives, including encouraging Canadians to compete internationally in some settings and invest, invest money through, through vehicles that are completely legitimate under the FAPI rules in pursuit of other purposes. Well, the, I, I don't believe that we have uh, misstated or oversimplified the, uh, the FAPI regime as, uh, as, as my uh, friends uh, at the respondent may have alleged. Um, the, uh, in fact, the, the, this kind of activity is precisely, I submit, the, the kind of um, activity which the FAPI rules were intended uh, to capture the arm's length test um, looks to um, identify the degree to which um, the business is conducted with non-arm's length parties because um, non-arm's length transactions um, are uh, often used to divert income and avoid tax. And so it is seen as a, uh, uh, as a way to differentiate between those uh, types of CFAs, which uh, warrant uh, exclusion from FAPI treatment and, and those uh, which don't. Um, but in order to apply the arm's length test um, in, a, in a sensible and appropriate manner, um, one needs to look at the totality of the business and not um, hive off uh, parts of it, uh, um, which will uh, result in, a, in, a, in an incomplete view of the nature of the business activity. And the, the interpretation which the respondent urges upon the court and which was accepted by the Court of Appeal uh, provides the opportunity for um, well-resourced taxpayers to uh, fund their CFAs with large amounts of equity and have um, those monies invested in largely passive uh, sorts of investments, and, such as uh, was the case uh, with Glen Huron. And that, I submit, is precisely the kind of um, fact situation that the FAPI rules were intended to capture. Mr. Noble, you try to... Um import here uh, the GAR, and it is not a GAR case. It is a statutory interpretation case. And although the trial judge, the tax court judge, made uh, some, uh, he, he had an obiter about the GAR, that obiter was not disputed by the Crown before the Federal Court of Appeals. So my impression is you are trying, you are using words like avoid taxes and 
that you are trying to get the, to imply the, the GAR here, where it is not a GAR case. It is a statutory interpretation case. And maybe uh, the intent was what you just described. Maybe there is a legislative gap, but is it the role of our court to fulfill that gap? To fill that gap? Uh, Justice Cote, I, I'd submit that um, uh, the arm's length requirement in um, the financial institution exception um, has an anti-avoidance purpose, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And in order to uh, um, interpret uh, the arm's length requirement in accordance with a textual contextual purpose of uh, approach, as uh, we are called upon to do, uh, some um, some emphasis has to be given to the anti-avoidance um, purposes, even though this isn't a GAR case, as, as you uh, have pointed out. Um, so uh, the anti-avoidance um, um, uh, rationale underlying uh, the provision is uh, something that uh, ought to be borne in mind. And um, um, it, it's it's not of uh, it's not to be minimized just because we're no longer in a in a gar situation. Um, if I could perhaps make some submissions with regard to the second point that I was proposing to address, which is the exclusion of the NARM arms length funding by the federal court of appeal, resulted in the statute being applied in an inconsistent manner. Uh, Glenn Huron's business was treated in effect as two different businesses, one when applying the arm's length test and another for purposes of applying the remainder of the financial institution exception. But the business to which the statute directs the court is in both instances is the same business. It is the business that was carried on by Glenn Huron as a foreign bank. And the relevant wording, uh, it may assist to look at for a moment and it it's, uh, it can be viewed at paragraph 60 in the appellant's factum, and uh, the relevant wording starts at paragraph A, the business, bracket, other than any business conducted principally with persons with whom the affiliate does not deal at arm's length, and bracket, is one, a business carried on by it as a foreign bank. So when considering the words, any business conducted principally with, we know in, in the present case what the business under consideration is. It is the business that was carried on by Glen Huron as a foreign bank. That is the business to which the arm's length test has to be applied. In the case before you, this business was what Glen Huron described as its offshore banking business and later its international banking business. Um, as mentioned, the trial judge found that Glen Huron's business had a receipt of fund side and a use of fund side. The trial judge also found that in order to be licensed in Barbados, Glen Huron had to have both of those receipt of fund side and the use of fund side. So without both, Glen Huron couldn't be licensed as an offshore bank and couldn't be a foreign bank and therefore couldn't be carrying on business as a foreign bank. But under the Federal Court of Appeals and the respondents approach, um, Funding, the funding side would be taken into consideration when determining whether Glen Huron is a foreign bank and carried on a business as a foreign bank, but then ignored when applying the arm's length test. And I submit that 
this court ought not to endorse such an approach as a correct approach. It would not be an appropriate application of the statute to look to Glen Huron's funding side in order to determine if the entity is a foreign bank and carrying on business as a foreign bank, but not take that funding into account when applying the arm's length test to that same business. Um, I'm sorry, just to come back to Justice Martin's question to you though, isn't there a difference between whether it qualifies as a foreign bank and how the carrying on business in our tax statute is defined? And do we let the, the foreign legislation define what that means in our statute? There's a distinction between whether it qualifies as a foreign bank and then whether it, the, the business conducted is principally with arm's length. And that's a Canadian statute and we interpret that here. Well, the, the, in order to qualify for the financial institution exception, the, the business that it carries on has to be a business carried on by it as a foreign bank. And then one looks to uh, whether that business was a business conducted principally with arm's length or non-arm's length persons. And I submit that it's not a question of deferring to a foreign jurisdiction about what its business is. Uh, the business is what it is. The business it carried on as a foreign bank involved uh, um, obtaining funding and using that funding in certain ways. Uh, one has to um, apply the arm's length test to the same business. One can't hive off half of the activities of the business for purposes of applying the arm's length test. One needs to apply it to the same business that is the business which uh, the CFA seeks to um, rely on to benefit from this financial institution exception. Chernobyl, is, it not a, is there not a distinction between the capitalization of a corporation in order to enable that corporation to conduct business and the activities by which the income or the profits uh, are earned. I'm capitalizing a corporation in order to permit that corporation to start conducting business. Um, that might be relevant uh, if one were determining deductibility of expenses uh, in computing profit. Uh, but I submit in applying the statutory language, business conducted and whether uh, the business uh, was conducted with arm's length or non-arm's length persons, that's not a relevant distinction. Um, you know, you keep saying that, and I'm wondering if you could take us to the definition and explain why that is. Because I agree, the, def the definition isn't as narrow as, as, as is suggested and uh, as has been suggested elsewhere, but it doesn't seem to me that it bears this engorged meaning that you're giving it, and I'm wondering if you can help me with that. Um, the, the definition of business is, um, I, I don't know if I have that. So I have it here, it's, it's section 248, a profession, yes. a profession calling trade, manufacture, or undertaking of any kind. So I, I accept, for example, it's not restricted to generating something generating profit, but 
and now conduct is not defined, but, but I, I understand conduct as meaning carrying out, right? Um, but, but it's not obvious to me that that definition um, encompasses something that enables business to be conducted, such as the receipt of capital or the, or the negotiation of a, of a lease for physical premises or whatever, and the activities themselves, which are the conduct of the business. I, and maybe you can address why I'm wrong. Um, well, there are cases which have considered uh, whether funding is uh, integral to a business. And I would submit that in, in this, uh, in the example of Glen Huron, the funding it received from non-arms length parties was integral to its business. Uh, the, uh, Why? It was a business of making money from money. It, it absolutely needed that money. And so it got virtually all of its money from non-arms length parties. My father ran a hardware store. He needed money too. Um, was his negotiation with the bank integral? To his business? What difference does it make what kind of, whether he's selling hardware or whether he's selling financial planning or whatever he's selling? Well, I, I submit it does make a difference if, uh, if, it's a bit, if it's a financial business involving using money to make other money, that's different from uh, a more uh, conventional kind of um, uh, But isn't it, this, isn't it this simple? To operate a business of whatever kind, you, the operator often needs a capital injection. Right? They, the reason they're making, they're in business is to make money. They don't have the money right away. They need an injection to get the business going. It doesn't matter whether they're, you're going to use that money to deal in money or to deal in widgets. Isn't it this simple that there's a distinction between something that enables business to be conducted, such as the receipt of capital and the activities of that business? And again, I mean, with reference to the definition, which you haven't really addressed except to say it covers it, what is, why is that, why should we accept that that's part of the conduct of Glenn? Glenn Huron's business. Um, the, the funding was received over a course of years. It, it wasn't an instance, for example, in an initial injection of capital. But you say uh, that doesn't matter because as long as they're using it, even if it's just that first injection, that's, that's doing business with the parent corp. So that doesn't matter. I have your submission on that from earlier. Yes. Um, well, I, I would refer to um, the uh, Consolidated Mogul Mines case at tab 13 in our condensed book, which is an instance of where um, financing and funding was, was viewed as being integral to the business. Uh, so but that's it, not it what is, the definition says. Mm -hmm. can, can we refer to the definition? And can you tell me why the definition bears this ambitious meaning that you ascribe to it? 
because the, the undertaking in question um, involved uh, using um, funding provided or obtained uh, to make uh, money using that money, and uh, that's the nature of its business. How's that, that different from my? How's that different from my father's hardware store? Well, um, he used it to buy stock. He used the money to buy stock, and then he sold the stock to make money. This we're dealing with a, a controlled foreign affiliate, and with. Uh, investment business which has a particular definition involving um, activity uh, directed at earning income from property and that is defined in certain ways so uh, that provides a framework that, that uh, I submit differentiates the situation with which we're concerned from a uh, more conventional kind of business um, income from property as uh, as uh, defined in section 95 for purposes of the investment uh, business definition um, includes the sorts of returns uh, uh, that Glenn Huron was was uh, seeking to obtain um, so that uh, the investment business definition uh, supplements the the one in in 248 one I, I would submit and uh, having regard to uh, both aspects of um, the, the uh, description of business, both in 248.1 and in 95.1, um, I'd submit that uh, the obtaining of, of funding um, from whichever source, whether it's a parent or from arm's length uh, entities, uh, is a part of the business um, um, conducted for purposes of the arm's length requirement. But it still begs the, in fairness to my colleague, it still begs the question, you're right to say that what we're concerned about is the definition of an investment business, and that's FAPI. There's an exemption, which is not FAPI, business by a foreign bank with more than five employees, not FAPI. And then there's the exception to the exemption about any business conducted principally with persons. So, so that's the setting in which all of this is, is, is debated. And you're right, it's context specific. But, but in, in, again, it, it does require us to ask ourselves what the character of the business is. And, and it, it seems to me that while Federal Court of Appeals said it quite nicely at paragraph 86. Well, you might wish that the very target of FAPI legislation, investment portfolios held offshore, uh, be included in all circumstances, but they're not. They're not. The law doesn't include them in all circumstances in pursuit of different policy objectives. I guess I'd, I wouldn't mind hearing it, as your time expires, how you would explain to us the amendments to the act in 2014, where the FI exception was reviewed, new conditions for eligibility added, but the FI exception was not repealed, nor was the arm's length test changed, but we have this new section 95.211 that narrows the class of taxpayers eligible to rely on the exception. 
It's, now, I may be wrong, and, and, uh, but I hear the respondent saying what you're asking the court to do with the interpretation you suggest uh, uh, in this case is to apply 2014, the 2014 amendment retroactively. Are they right? Uh, no. Uh, the 2014 amendment, as you observe, Justice Kassir, does narrow the range of entities which can benefit from um, the exception. But as you rightly point out, it, it didn't change the arm's length requirement. Um, and uh, we say it, it ha the 2014 amendment has no relevance uh, to this uh, appeal. Uh, and it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't supply any support for the respondent's assertion that it, it reflects an intention that um, the activities involved in by Glen Huron were, were intended to benefit from uh, 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 exclusion from FAPI. Well, was uh, there a need to narrow the class if we just adopt your, your test of arm's length? Maybe that, that amendment was superfluous in 2014. Why did Parliament do it if, if you're right on, the, on the, the test that you're proposing for us? Um, there are other aspects to the amendment in 2014, such as the, the $2 million taxable capital in, in Canada requirement, which uh, are motivated perhaps by other considerations. Uh, I, I wouldn't suggest that the, the amendment had no, or would, it would have had no effect if, if the interpretation uh, that we have advocated for the arm's length test is, is accepted by this court. Um, they've, the amendment uh, addresses um, concerns other than uh, those that are uh, the subject of the arm's length requirement um, arguments before this court. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't agree with my, my friends that, uh, um, that the one is a substitute for the other or, or anything of that nature. Um, in the time that remains, um, I would perhaps address um, the assertions as to parental oversight. Um, the respondent has alleged that the, uh, um, the activities of uh, Loblaw amounted to routine parental oversight, and I, I suggest that uh, that's not a, an, a, an assertion that's supported by the record. Uh, after a rigorous and comprehensive examination of the facts, the tax court judge concluded that the parents' dealings with Glen Huron went well beyond shareholder oversight. Uh, the tax court concluded that the parents' influence pervaded the conduct of Glen Huron's business. This was uh, at paragraph 247 of the tax court's reasons which we have included at tab nine in the condensed book. Um, so these activities went beyond shareholder oversight. Um, it's noteworthy that the tax court never characterized the parents' role as oversight. Um, 
Now, the, the Federal Court of Appeal observed at paragraph 72 that the evidence was not sufficiently detailed to conclude that the involvement of the parent was limited to an oversight role. Um, and uh, later in its reasons, it observed that if the alleged legislative intent of encouraging Canadians to carry on active businesses outside of Canada would, would be frustrated if significant weight were to be given to these interactions between the Glen Heron and its parent in applying the arm's length test. Um, but if, as I submit, uh, the parent's influence pervaded the business conducted by Glen Huron, as found by the trial judge, those interactions should receive appropriate weight in the weighing exercise that is called for under the statute and, I, and not be- I'm sorry, I don't understand your position. It, it, maybe it's it, and my fault, but are you, are you then conceding that being subject to ordinary corporate oversight is not the conduct of business? No, the, the, the contrary. The, the trial judge found that... Um, no, I understand what on the facts, but you seem to say it was overreaching over ordinary corporate oversight. But, but my concern is that the position of being subject to corporate oversight, is that a sign yes or no of conduct of whether of the conduct of business no not simply oversight but it, that's not what was found in this case the, the what was found in this case was uh that the parents influence pervaded the business and so if if that is in evidence that is something that which should be and appropriately was taken into consideration by the trial judge in the weighing exercise but do you have any support, Mr. Noble, uh, for the position that being subject to corporate oversight, which in my book is normal commercial behavior between a parent and a subsidiary, but do you have any support for the position that corporate oversight uh, is the conduct of business? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that mere corporate oversight is, uh, but that's not what we were dealing with in in the facts of this case, the the parents' activity went well beyond that, as found by the trial judge, and and that is uh, uh, evidence which the trial judge correctly took into account in the weighing exercise that was called for under the statute. Thank you very much. Thank you, um, Baba Forson. Good morning, Chief Justice. Justices, Ontario submits that the arm's length requirement of the exception to the investment business definition must be considered in its proper statutory context and the proper factual context of the relevant business of the controlled foreign affiliate. The statutory language of the arm's length requirement is concerned with whether the business of, the, of a controlled foreign affiliate that earns income from property, whatever form that business may take, is conducted principally with arm's length persons. And that business may be a regulated foreign banking business, as in this case, or other types of regulated or unregulated businesses. The phrase business conducted in the arm's length requirement refers to the conduct of the business. And this requires a consideration of all aspects that are relevant to the conduct of the business. And the arm's length requirement does not distinguish 
between those aspects that fund the operation of the business and those that do not. Nothing in the investment business definition suggests narrowing the conduct of the business to income earning activities. So what I, I asked this to, your, to um, Mr. Noble and I never got an answer. What is it in the definition that allows it to be understood so broadly as you're suggesting? So what is it, what it is in the definition and by definition, I mean the investment business definition is the word conduct, business conducted principally worth. The word conduct does not narrow, does not mean narrowing it to the income earning activities. I, I accept that. What, what, what in that term allows it to be broadened to, so as to obliterate the distinction between what is required to, to, to enable business to be conducted and the actual activities that are conducted. And Justice Brown, my submission would be that we're not suggesting that it be broadened. Our, what we're stating is that you have to look at the full factual context and that means looking at all aspects. In, in my respectful submission, looking at all aspects of the conduct of a business no, 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 does no, no, not no, mean no, broadening. No, no, no. You look at the factual context in determining whether a business fits the statutory test as properly interpreted. You do not look at a factual context in determining the meaning of that test. So what is it in the actual definition that gets you where you want to be? So, so what it is, it is in the actual definition is the, the really the issue is that the look, if you just look at the income earning activities, you are disregarding an integral part of the of the, the arm's length requirement, which is really conducting business. Were you conducting business with arm's length parties or with non-arm's length parties? And the and our submission is that the funding is integral to the conduct of the business. So it's is the fact that the if business if a business is earning income from property, the business requires income uh, to, to, to in order in, in order to uh, well, well, funding in order to earn income. Obviously it requires it, but does that mean that it is the conduct of business? Businesses require lots of things, but, but is it actually that you're, you're saying what is integral to the conduct is the conduct? Is that right? No, that, that, no that, that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that to the extent that you know, any, any funding is used to earn income from property, the source of that funding is a necessary component in determining whether the business is conducted principally with arm's length persons. That's, our, our, our submission is that sourcing, maintaining, using, and continuing to use any funding is integral to the conduct of a business and a controlled foreign affiliate will not have an investment business without funding. And that, that really is our respectful submission that that cannot be disregarded that in, in looking at the, all aspects of the of that business funding is integral is an integral component and the correct approach uh, in our submission is to just to look at that in the full and proper context when determining whether the arm's length requirement is met thank you very much thank you the court will uh, take its morning break 15 minutes
Thank you. Be seated. Al-Baji, <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices of the Court. <clears throat> I'm going to start my submission by talking about, by, by going to Ontario's factum, and they tell us something that is of profound importance. And that is, they tell us in paragraph one of their factum how important certainty in our tax laws is. And this court has told us about the importance of certainty in the interpretation and application of our tax laws in virtually every significant tax case that has been heard by this court probably over the last 20 years certainty in the interpretation and application of our tax laws is a compelling public policy imperative. What we have here before you is this, this, this legislation comes out 25 years ago when the Department of Finance and Parliament decide that they're going to revisit our whole regime. And we have a detailed code of how the whole FAPI system is supposed to work, and that's introduced 25 years ago. Contemporaneously, the Canada Revenue Agency issues the document that Justice Karatsakanis went to in her opening question. And in that document, the CRA tells the world, tells Canadian taxpayers, that when you are applying the arm's length test, the source of capital is largely irrelevant. And importantly, the Canada Revenue Agency tells taxpayers that the test we're talking about when we talk about the arm's length test is something that is focused on revenues. They actually use that phrase. It's about revenues. And for 25 years, the system has worked perfectly well. For 25 years, Canadian companies have basically followed that, that interpretation. And that interpretation is consistent with our fundamental tax law and corporate law principles that we focus when we talk about the conduct of business, we focus on the things that generate profits. And to make and CRA makes sure that we taxpayers or taxpayer corporations understand that the focus is not on the receipt of capital. And all they're doing in that bulletin is they're reflecting the settled and received principles of corporate and tax law. Mr. Meji, on that, when Justice Karakatsanis asked her question about the, the document, uh, Mr. Noble gave, said, oh, it was to uh, respond to a very limited problem. What do you have to say on that? Well, it, that's an interesting way for them to describe it. But what this document is, is a taxpayer writes in and says, what is your position? How do you apply this? 
And then the CRA answers the taxpayer, but releases, as you see, a redacted document to the public. Okay. And that's why these sorts of interpretations, CRA doesn't keep this letter private. They release it to taxpayers. They, you could see they've redacted the names of the taxpayers. And in fact, if you read the document, it's pretty evident that they're talking about all this in the context of a financial institution. And then Justice Karatsakanis, I recall, referred to a second document which was issued in 2000, which is plainly in the context of a deposit-taking institution, and CRA again reiterates its position. Okay. So that's the way that the law began 25 years ago. That's the way taxpayers understood it, and that's the way it's been working. And it worked just fine until this case came along. Now, here's the thing, and this is something that may not have come out in, my, in, in our factums, or it may not be crystal clear from what you heard from my friend. When this case went to trial, justices, everything you've heard here today was not the Crown's argument. The Crown did not argue before the trial judge that the reason we should fail this test is because Glenn Huron was conducting business principally with Loblaw. That was not their case. Their case, and if you look at their submissions, and they are in the materials that have been provided to the court, their case was Glenn Huron wasn't conducting business with anyone. They never argued that Glenn Huron was conducting business principally with Loblaw because it received capital from Loblaw. And it's understandable why they didn't argue that. Because they were not going to go to trial and take a position that was contrary to what their own client had told taxpayers for the last 25 years. So the trial judge raises this thing for the first time, sometime in the, in the argument phase. And we have a debate with the trial judge about this point. And uh, the trial judge then goes and decides the case by finding that we were conducting business principally with law law. That was never a proposition in the Crown's case. It wasn't in the pleadings. It wasn't discovered. It was, uh, it was something the trial judge came up with on his own later. Now, I'm just going to say this in passing because I'm not going to spend much time on it. My friends in their materials have said, you know, look at what Mr. Meiji said at trial. And he, he basically conceded that we were conducting business with Loblaw. I, I'm surprised that I'm the best authority that the Crown relies on on this proposition. But if you look at the exchange that I had with the trial judge, the trial judge and I were talking about whether under Barbados law, under Barbados law, whether the receipt of these amounts constituted the conduct of the business. I agreed with him that under Barbados law, that is what the law of Barbados said. And then I said, and I'm going to come back after the break and clarify for you my position on this. We went for a break. I came back and made it crystal clear to the trial judge that no, we must look to Canadian law. On we this. must look to our domestic law on what business conducted means. And then we file submissions to show that. So what you are being asked to do 
and make no mistake about this, Justices, you are being asked to upset a perfectly well-working system that is consistent with our fundamental principles of corporate law and our fundamental principles of tax law, and you are being asked to import a commercially, uh, a commercially, and I say this, I use this word, uh, you know, with care, and I'll explain why I use it. You're being asked to adopt a commercially absurd interpretation of this provision, number one, and you are being asked to inject significant commercial uncertainty into the process. I use the words commercially absurd and commercially and commercial uncertainty. What do I mean by that? Can I Let ask you, perhaps before you get to that, if, if you don't mind, I think at its heart, Mr. Noble's argument here today is that to qualify for this exemption, you have to qualify as a foreign uh, a bank, a foreign bank, and in order to be a foreign bank, you have to look at the business conducted by a foreign bank and meet the foreign definition of business for, in order to qualify for this tax exemption. Yes. So what is your specific answer to that? And then you can come back to the bigger arguments of uh, absurdity that you want so, to So uh, basically what he's doing is the, the, the appellant is basically conflating the question, the first question, which is, are you a bank under the laws of Barbados? That's a question. And when we go to answer that question, as we did in this trial, we look to the local law, we called an expert who said, yes, you are a bank under the laws of Barbados. And they called an expert who said, no, you're not, because they said under the bank, under the laws of Barbados, you have to be, I think this is a fair representation of their evidence, you have to be essentially a deposit-taking institution. And the trial judge heard, heard all of that evidence, and he said, no, you are a bank under the laws of Barbados. And he said, because the domestic banking law of Barbados speaks of the receipt of funds and the use of funds. And that's understandable. Because what is the Barbados bank law about? It's, about? it's a regulatory regime. The Barbados authorities, you know, when they're administering the bank law, they're concerned about cash flows. They're concerned about what foreign currency is coming into our country, into this bank, what foreign, foreign currency is leaving, where is it being used? So they look at it through the lens of the local Barbados law because they're regulators and they understand business for that purpose to be consistent with their mandate. And it's understandable that that's what they're doing. So we've satisfied that condition. Now we come to Canada. So we've met that condition. And then when we get to the arm's length test, the phrase appears and it must be interpreted according to Canadian law. And imagine if my friends were right. So what we're going to do is if the, if the regulators in, Bar, in Bermuda have a different definition of business or the uh, regulators in Sweden have a different definition of business and we comply with their definition of business, all of a sudden, all these foreign affiliates 
operating entities outside of Canada uh, are faced with a different definition of business uh, when we're, we're, we're seeking to tax them. That results simply, nobody would argue that that result is, is consistent with what we're trying to do here. So um, let, let me go now to the, the, what, what, I, what I said. I said two things, commercially absurd and commercially unworkable. Here's why it's commercially absurd. What they're basically saying is we have Glenn Huron here, which receives capital and then conducts the business it did. It entered into swaps, it bought, it bought T-bills, and it made profits from that activity. So they say, because you got your capital from your parent, your income is FAPI and you're taxable in Canada. Now let's assume that you've got a company identical to Glenn Huron, doing exactly the same things buying the same T-bills, doing the same swaps, making exactly the same profits. And, and remember here, the evidence is that Glenn Huron took its capital, deployed it almost entirely for these business activities. Its employees spent almost all their time conducting these activities. Um, so all their labor, their capital, et cetera, is used to conduct these activities. So you have Glenn Huron doing exactly the same thing, but instead of getting their capital from their parent, they went to an arm's length person. They issued, they got debt from a bank. They issued preferred shares to an arm's length person. They went to some sort of private equity outfit and got ca uh, capital. Well, according to the Crown, these two taxpayers who are identically situated, except for the source of their capital are going to be taxed differently in Canada. How does that make any sense when we understand what this regime is entirely about? And here's what I mean when I say that. My friends tell you in their factum, numerous paragraphs, they say this regime is entirely about testing the nature of the income that's being earned. They say, let's look at that company and see if it is earning active business income. What is the level of activity? Is this income active or is it passive? And that's their whole factum. Their whole factum is about the FAPI regime. The essence, the raison d'etre of this regime is to is to test the quality and the nature of the income being earned and to compartmentalize it either as active business or to, to see if it's got sort of, you know, uh, um, passive aspects to it. Yet you have two taxpayers earning exactly the same type of income, doing exactly the same type of uh, activity, once being taxed in Canada, once one is not. It, it is intellectually irreconcilable. Let me, uh, let me interrupt what? for a moment, please, if I may, Mr. Renzi. I just want to understand something. You gave us the example of the startup funds coming from a third party. Um, and you say, um, what? I'm not quite sure what you're saying, whether that would be captured or not on your friend's theory, but isn't there a big distinction? I mean, any profits that are made by the business, Glen Huron, uh, in terms of 
um, arm's length transactions with other people and they're making money off it and retained earnings and so on, don't go back to the third parties. They, whereas here, ultimately, it's Loblaws that's going to get the benefit of any profits that have been made. So I may be totally wrong, but I don't see that. I see that as a distinction. Uh, the same distinction I would make with Justice Brown's father. He, he's not making his profits to give it all back to the bank. He's not, the bank doesn't own his father. So there's no, there's an arm's length transaction there clearly. So I'm just trying to understand this because there is a distinction, it seems to me, where the funding is coming from a complete third party, arm's length, who will not be entitled to all the profits at the end of the day that the, op that the Glen Huron makes, unlike Loblaws, who will. Well, uh, Justice Moldaver, let me, take your, uh, let me take your illustration or your example and say that uh, if that is correct, if, if, that is a, if that is a relevant element in deciding whether something is fappy or not, uh, then we have uh, an issue in the sense that every corporation that has a subsidiary down there, ultimately, ultimately the beneficiary of the profits of any subsidiary is the parent. So, so if you said, well, the test is that is, is the profit ultimately going to end up in the parent or is the profit uh, you know, going to go to a third party? If you use that test, whatever profits are, are the profits of a subsidiary ultimately end up in a parent. So does it follow that therefore every subsidiary's income is fappy? That's not this regime. The regime is not asking where the profits are going to end up. No, no but I, I think you're being unfair to, to Justice Moldaver's question. The, 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 the argument that the Crown is making is that this is an, ostensibly an investment portfolio held offshore, and it should be taxed as FAPI. And indeed, the Federal Court of Appeal recognized that argument, and the concern is a valid one, paragraph 86. So, so it's not so far-fetched. The policy argument is not so far-fetched. And I understood from your factum that it, you weren't so much as denying the validity of the policy concern, but that you were saying that in the, in the, in the context of, a, of statutory interpretation as opposed to some other process such as GAR, that the the object of determining whether the taxpayer can organize its affairs to attract the least tax possible allows it to do this. But it's not so much that the policy is crazy or, or, or is reduced to this dynamic that you describe between um, investment and non-investment. We're dealing here with the investment business uh, rule in the in the FAPI rules and 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 the exemptions there under. So I think, in fairness to th that, that's what's at issue here. I think that the my response to that is the use of the phrase investment portfolio. 
the FAPI rules don't speak about investment portfolios. It's not, it's, it's sorry, FAPI. I'm going to, sorry, I don't mean to be rude, but that's not my phrase, that's the Federal Court of Appeal. So I, of course, it doesn't use investment portfolio. I'm saying that's the policy position that the Crown, in the, in the eyes of, of Justice Woods, was taking. And she was responding to that by saying it was a valid concern. My, in my respectful submission, I think that we are putting, we are, we are putting, um, uh, we are reading Justice Woods's last paragraph, the paragraph that my friends rely on. We're reading too much into it. The phrase investment portfolio originates with the trial judge and the crown. But, but, but perhaps I can respond to that, the use of that phrase in this way. The FAPI regime basically says this. I mean, this is the principle of the FAPI regime. We're going to look at the subsidiary and we're going to determine whether what it's earning is active business income or FAPI. That's it, two boxes. It's either earning active business income or it's earning FAPI. And then to remove the subjectivity that goes with whether something is active business income or whether something is FAPI, and to avoid uses of phrases like investment portfolio, passive income, mobile capital, to ensure that none of those sorts of subjective, colloquial uh, uh, phrases uh, don't create uncertainty, the legislation says, none of that language is relevant. What we're going to do is write a very prescriptive set of rules to see whether you fall into the FAPI box or into the active business income box. And these rules then completely uh, occupy the definition. So here, you know, my friend says it's an investment portfolio. The trial judge uses the phrase, it's an investment portfolio. But the test for whether something is active business asks some very big questions. Is this a bank? Is this a bank under the local jurisdiction? Answer, yes. Does it have the requisite number of more than five employees? Yes. Is it really regulated as a bank in the foreign jurisdiction? Yes. In fact, this bank is so regulated that it, it, in fact, its parent uh, had to put capital in it because the Central Bank of Barbados said, we want you to put more capital into this. So what the, what the, so, so what, what the legislation does is it doesn't allow us to slip into colloquialisms like investment portfolio because, because you know, you kind of say that and then and, and it, 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 it obfuscates what this legislation is doing. So there are all these very, you know, prescriptive defined tests. And where we ended up is a trial judge finding this is a bank that was constituted in Barbados for commercial reasons. It is regulated in Barbados as a bank. It files annual reports with the Barbados authorities. The Barbados authorities subjected to the regulation and jurisdiction. So the, the phrase investment portfolio is frankly a distraction. Uh, he can call it an investment portfolio, but it is, as the trial judge found, 
uh, a robust operating bank. And it does the kinds of things that a bank does, taking on risks that are associated with uh, you know, swaps. Uh, the activities that are being carried on are the kinds of things that you know, the trial judge said made it a bank. Now, Justice, my submission to, to, to the question is this, when Justice Woods is dealing with this, she gets to the conclusion and the Crown says, this is an investment portfolio. And she says, when she uses the words, this is a valid comment, I, I'm not exactly sure what she means by that. But what I think she's saying to the Crown is, but I've got a subsequent legislative amendment here. And Parliament uh, has dealt with this issue in the way it sees fit. So to the extent that your concern is a legitimate one. Parliament has addressed it. It's not for the court to, to deal with this in a retroactive way. So I'm not, I'm not uh, I'm, 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 with respect, I don't concede that there is any policy issue here. So what, what is the policy issue? The policy question is very simple. Is this active business or isn't it? It's only when we start using colloquialisms like investment portfolio and mobile capital, and we get into this touchy-feely characterization of the income as opposed to the strictly intellectually rigorous characterization of the activity and the income that the statute directs us to do, that we start um, uh, slipping off and, and questioning the policy. Mr. Amirji, is, um, is it possible to, be, uh, to get the benefit of the exception if you're not a bank? Um, it's not possible to get the benefit of the exception in all circumstances, but in our case, you, you will see that what we had pled was, and I can take you through the legislation, we had pled 2C, uh, which was another condition, and the trial judge said, I don't have to deal with that because I find that you were a bank. Okay. So I don't have to go and deal with whether you qualify under another branch, and so that issue was never pursued after. Okay, thank you. What, what but, the, your colleague has criticized the use of Canadian pioneer management in helping to understand uh, the character of this business. What, what are your views on that? And then also, perhaps by extension, Montreal Coke and, and the Bennett case. So with respect to um, the pioneer case, um, um, as the Crown points out, neither party cited that case to the Court of Appeal. Uh, we didn't cite it, the Crown didn't cite it, and, and I think you, Justice Woods says at the, in her reasons that while she largely agrees with Loblaw's position, uh, her analysis differs some, somewhat, is what she says. And, um, and, and then she goes on to cite Canadian Pioneer, I don't believe that Canadian Pioneer is central to her reasoning. I think what she's trying to say there, she's raising Canadian Pioneer as an answer to the Crown's argument that you should adopt the Barbados banking definition. She's saying, we don't adopt. I think she's saying in Canada, we're not going to adopt the Barbados definition. And I think she then points to Canadian Pioneer. I, we didn't cite it. We don't think it was necessary for her to go there. 
we think that once the trial judge had satisfied and accepted our argument that we were a bank under the laws of Barbados, we think that issue was done. And all she had to do was apply the arm's length test, which she did. What, what it, when she said um, to, in, that, in the same sentence, the tax, uh, 56, tax court's approach is at odds with Canadian Pioneer, and this is a portion that interests me, which details that a formal institutional approach should be taken to define a banking business. Using this approach, there is no reasonable basis to conclude that the arm's length test requires both business receipts and uses. What, what, do you, what, what do you have to say about this formal institutional approach she mentions? I, 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 I can't uh, say that I know exactly what she means by that, but I think that what sheds light on that phrase is when she talks about receipts and uses, of course, receipts and uses is a concept that comes right out of Barbados law. And so she's using that formal institutional approach to juxtapose to say uh, the, the receipts and uses uh, narrative or the receipts and uses conception is not, is not acceptable under our... Um, so am I right in understanding our, your position that she did not need to rely on Canadian Pioneer, nor did she need to rely on a formal institutional approach um, to conclude that receipts under general principles of corporate law should not be included. I, that, is, that is our position. She did not need to rely on that. All right. So now I'm going to ask you to continue that thought with her reliance on Montreal Coke and Bennett and White, which your friend says were misplaced, that they deal with the different question as to whether expenditures of, of entities that were not in the business of engaging in financial oper operations were on capital or income account. And so that, that skewed the usefulness of those authorities. What do you say about that? Um, the, undoubtedly, those authorities dealt with, um, the authorities deal with expenditures that are incurred by the, the specific companies and whether those expenses are deductible or in the nature of capital. That, that's what those cases deal with. And we accept that. But what's, what's, what those cases teach us, and that is why they're relevant here, is that when you're dealing with the capital structure, when you're dealing with, with, with in, 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 in one of those cases, you have a situation where capital comes in by way of debt, bonds and then there is a change in interest rates and the company decides we're going to essentially reorganize the capital structure by taking out the old debt and getting new debt out and the court says that relates to the capital structure and the court distinguishes that from the income earning operations and what justice woods is doing is relying on those cases appropriately to ground or to reiterate the profound uh, distinction that exists between capital and, uh, and income earning activities. So and the fact that, that capital is received to enable income earning activities while the conduct of business is about what one does to earn and generate profits. So thank you for, thank you for that. I, I, 
um, I get your, your point. Your colleague says, however, that, that the statute at the time that those two cases were decided and this distinction you mentioned between the provision of capital and the process of earning income is not made in the arm's length distinction that we've got before us today. Um, the, the distinction between income earning, profit generating activity versus the creation of the, and I'm going to use a word that a bunch of the old English cases where all of this comes from, you know, the English courts have said there's a distinction between the profit making apparatus and the activities to generate profits. That distinction is, comes from uh, the English uh, cases, which we absorb into our Canadian tax law and is a foundation stone of pretty much our entire statute. So, so what Justice Woods is doing is she's speaking of cases that are, uh, that, that, that are talking about such fundamental and core principles and explaining that here is an example of a case that echoes those principles that, that are the foundation stone of our whole income tax system. So um, I just want to go back to a question from uh, Justice Moldaver, and uh, that was that uh, that was then picked up by Justice Casirier, and they uh, and and that relates to you know this is this money is coming back to Loblaw, and and the concern that Loblaw is the shareholder, uh, and ultimately all of this is coming back to them, and 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 you have that concern. Well, let me see if I can allay that concern with this. The very concern that you're talking about is addressed explicitly by Parliament in 95.2L. So 95.2L says this, and I'm just going to paraphrase it and, and then take you to the provision if need be. 95.2L basically says this. It says, if you are earning this type of income, and uh, 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 you know the type of income that Glenn Huron was earning, that income, even if you clear this test, all of the tests that we've talked about, you know, you're a foreign bank, you have five employees, you're regulated, all, all of those tests, and you clear the arm's length test, even if you do all of that, that type of income will still be taxed in the hands of the parent, Okay, so if we had cleared the arm's length test, we would then next, we would then have to clear the next hurdle, which is 952L. And 952L says that income will be taxed in Loblaw's hands unless Loblaw's is in what I describe as the banking space. It's in the banking business. So 952L basically says that if you've got a Canadian company that's in the banking business, and you can be in the banking business by being, you know, a bank conducting banking business, or you can have a subsidiary that is a Schedule One bank. And Loblaw is that because Loblaw owns PC Bank, which is a Schedule One bank. Parliament goes out of its way to say, if you are that, that income will not be taxed in Canada. So what you have here is, 
this is very important. You have, you have the drafters, you have the Department of Finance, you have Parliament that sits there and asks, and this is the point, this goes to Justice Moldaver's question, asks, should we tax exactly this income in Canada? They put their minds to exactly this structure and they say, we will tax this in Canada, except if you in Canada, the corporate group, are in the banking space. And if you are, we will not tax this income in Canada. And, uh, and, and, and to be in the banking space, you have to have a Schedule One bank in your group. And we do. So, so Mr. My, my, it my, means my that... response to just... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it means that you need to have like two banks. Glenn Huron has to be a bank under the Barbados law. Yes. But it is not sufficient to address, uh, that will not be sufficient to address Justice Moldaver's concerns in order yes. to, uh, not to not to be taxed in Canada, the parent company or somebody in the group uh, has to be a bank too, a bank different than Glenn Huron. Yes, that's exactly right. And so I, I want to, uh, the reason I was directing this particularly Justice Moldaver is Justice Moldaver, your concern is I understood your concern to be, listen, I mean, I don't know if this sort of income should not be taxed in the hands of Loblaw. Should it be? I mean, I, you're, you're, should this arm's length test be interpreted in a way that this income isn't taxed in Loblaw's hands? The response to that is, Parliament put its mind to exactly that question, exactly that question, and said, we are explicitly deciding that it will not be taxed in Loblaw's hands because of this. But if it was any other taxpayer that is not in the banking space, this income would come back to Canada and be taxed. So Parliament has addressed exactly the concern that you have. And then, of course, what happens is in 2014, Parliament amends the law and says, effective now, we're going to change the class of taxpayers who get the benefit of being in the banking space, to use the language I used, and we're going to restrict it to banks of a particular size. So, so they have to have X billions of dollars uh, you know, in equity, et cetera. So Parliament addressed exactly, uh, put its mind to that, and then in 2014 changed the law and made it prospective. And that goes back to what Justice Woods was saying in her concluding paragraph, that, the, that, that uh, Parliament's put its mind to it. We're not in the business of applying uh, amendments retroactively. Just forgive me for a moment then. I, I just have to understand this. On your understanding, because Loblaws uh, also has an affiliate that is a valid bank here, you're not suggesting, I take it, that the funding that we're talking about, the capital funding, has to come from that bank. That doesn't mean anything. It's just that mean if you have a proper bank here, the funding can come through shareholder equity, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. Is that right? And That's I, I exactly just, right. Do I, That's exactly but can right. you just help me out, what's the, what's the Help me to understand why that matters so much. Well, because, because the reason it matters is because you're asking the question of did Parliament intend 
for the arm's length test to apply in a way that taxes this income in Loblaw's hands. And Parliament steps up and says, uh, no, because Loblaw has a Schedule One bank in its, hand, in its group. And if it didn't, then Parliament says, we will tax it. All right, and Parliament you. says, and we don't, we're not going to say to Loblaw that the source of your funding matters. What matters is do you have a Schedule One bank in your group? All right, thank you very much. Let me, um, let me just, let me just get to what I think is driving the Crown's case here. Look, here's the thing. My submission is if you just apply these settled concepts of tax law and corporate law, distinctions between revenue generation, capital receipt, um, and, and all the sort of all the cornerstone principles that, that sort of define these areas of law, and you apply some commercial common sense, you get to the result the Court of Appeal did. Of course, we're conducting business with all of those international banks and the people that we're buying uh, T-bills from. That's generating all our profits. Of course, we're conducting business with them, and they are unrelated parties. And of course, we're not conducting business with law law. That's just in my mind, just an, an unforced, natural, comfortable, uh, intellectually coherent view of the law. So what is it that's driving the Crown's case? And you see that in their factum. They start right at paragraph one with a very provocative line that if the Federal Court of Appeals decision stands, that wealthy Canadians will be parking all their investments offshore and avoiding Canadian tax. And, they, and, and that drives their whole case. Their whole case is about avoidance. They're, they're basically saying to you, Justices, that if you don't accept this forced interpretation of the legislation, you're going to have, you, you, you will have opened up a massive tax avoidance hole in the system. That's the appeal. And, and I dare say that in the current zeitgeist, where there is concerns about tax avoidance, that's not a bad play to make to this court. But I want to spend a few minutes telling you why that concern is wholly misplaced. And here's why. What happened in this case is when, when we went to trial, the Crown's whole case was about tax avoidance. And Justice Miller says that in paragraph one or two of his judgment. He says the parties frame this as a GAR case. And, and then the Crown's theory was this. The Crown said, Justice Miller, Loblaw went to Barbados. They incorporated a bank for the purposes of avoiding Canadian tax. They then capitalized it and diverted all of this money into Barbados to avoid Canadian tax. They then went and got a license so that they could take advantage of this to avoid Canadian tax. We had a huge trial. The trial 
uh, went on and on. And, we and they also said, and by the way, they didn't even have five employees there. We ran a trial where we called people who created the bank. We called one of the early directors. We called all the CEOs. They even subpoenaed Galen Weston to testify at the trial about this case. It was an epic debate about why this was all done. And the trial judge, who wasn't disposed towards us, I mean, he decided the case against us, makes a finding of fact. And he says, none of the things that were done were done principally to avoid taxes. He said, all of this was done primarily to, to, for commercial reasons. He said, this was a bank. It was, they were making money. They had uh, these smart people investing and making decisions about swaps. And so you don't have a tax avoidance case in front of you. The tax avoidance case was defeated at trial. You have a taxpayer in front of you who incorporated a bank in Barbados for bona fide commercial reasons. What were those commercial reasons? Because we know that whenever somebody uses Barbados and a 2.5% tax rate, everybody immediately says they didn't go down there for the weather, so they must have gone down there for, for, for tax avoidance. And the trial judge answers that. The trial judge says they went down there because of this. They had a significant uh, US business, a very significant foreign business, and they wanted to create an insurance company to reinsure the risks from that business. And somebody who was in the company that was doing all their insurance management looked at various locations and said, this is a good place to do it. It's, a, it's got expertise. It's got, you know, it's a jurisdiction with good law, et cetera. And then at about the same time, uh, they wanted to get into the derivatives trading business and that comes together. And there was a third element that enters into this, which is they were financing their US business using a Netherlands subsidiary and the US Netherlands treaty was being changed and that was going to create problems for them. So they said, we could even use this company to do that. The trial judge tells you all of that. And he makes a finding that that's why they went there. And so you don't have a tax avoidance case in front of you. What the Crown is telling you is, please, court, interpret this arm's length test the way we're suggesting. Because if you don't, there's going to be a, and apply it to these people who didn't engage in tax avoidance. So you're being asked to, to basically uh, pay no attention to the trial that we ran and demonstrated to the judge that we were not down there to avoid taxes. Mr. Maggi, would it be fair of us to infer that because the CRA argued this initially as a GAR case, that they can be taken as having implicitly suggested that they accepted that this was otherwise a legitimate application of the FAPI regime? 
No, because Justice Brown, uh, that that would not be fair because they okay. did plead and argue the other elements. Okay. But but it is fair to say what the trial judge said. Uh, the trial judge said both parties see this as a car case, and I, I didn't put this in the materials. I wish I had now, but you should read the Crown's opening statement. The Crown's opening statement was this was one big epic tax avoidance transaction. It was all about that. So they, they pled the other sections and they argued them. They threw the kitchen sink at us, but the focus was GAR. And the other thing to note, as we say in our written submissions, is this arm's length test was, it took, I don't know, out of a three week trial, it probably took, a, I don't know, two hours or something to argue. It was not, this was not what this appeal was about. The trial judge shifted it and said, they all are arguing that this case is about this. My mind, the battleground is on this thing. And, and then, frankly, after he comes back and says, you were conducting business with Loblaw, we were a bit surprised because we said, hey, nobody argued that. Nobody said that. Now, um, just a couple of observations. In, there's a few things that the Crown says about the FAPI regime in their description of the facts. Of the, of the law, that's just plainly misleading. And here's what I mean. They say, they say in their fact, um, you know, law law could have conducted this business in Canada. There is nothing in our FAPI regime, not even remotely, that says, if you can conduct a business in Canada, you must. They say, and the second thing they say is, they mentioned several times that Barbados had a 2.5% tax rate. Again, irrelevant. Why do I say that? Justices, here's what our FAPI system does. Our FAPI system basically says to Canadian companies, you are permitted to go anywhere in the world, set up subsidiaries and conduct business. We are not going to tell you that you can't go to country A or country B. Go out there, invest everywhere in the world. You decide where to deploy your capital. You want to go to a 2.5% country? Be our guest. All that we're concerned about is when you go to another country, whether the rate is 2.5%, like you know, Barbados or Sweden, where the tax rates are much higher. All we care about is if the income is active business income, we won't tax it. If it's FAPI, we will. It is our tax policy that we do not restrict companies from going to low tax jurisdictions and running businesses if they want to do that. All we say is if it's FAPI, we'll bring it back. But if it's not, be our guest. Go and do business in a 2.5% country. Now, why would we have that tax policy? Because my friends are implying that there's something fishy about a Canadian company setting up an operation in a 2.5% country. Now here, we didn't do that. As the trial judge said, we set it up for business reasons. But what if we had set it up because we like the 2.5% rate? Why is that okay? Why is it okay for us to allow Canadian companies to do that? And here's why. We 
are a country that has no restrictions on capital inflows, capital outflows. We are a serious open market economy. We welcome foreign investment and we encourage Canadian companies to maximize their profits by going out into the world and doing stuff. We're a serious country, Justice, is we have the 10th largest economy in the world. And this intimation that, you know, it's a 2.5% jurisdiction and they went down there. We're not a, our tax laws are not parochial. We're not a country that, that controls foreign exchange, uh, you know, bringing in money in or out. We don't have capital controls. Uh, we're a, we have a massive open economy and the message to Canadian companies is go out and do that. We won't interfere. You go to any country, if you like the tax rate, go there. We just have one rule. We have one simple rule. We will test your income. If it's fappy, we'll bring it back. If it's not, if it's active business, it'll stay out there. And the legislation says this, lest, lest this point be lost. Income is assumed to be active business. The presumption is it's active business because of the definitions in the legislation, unless it is rendered FAPI. So unless, you know, we, we start with, this is all active business, unless we fall into the FAPI box. That's consistent with our economy. That's consistent with tax policy. And this picture that's being painted is more akin to a parochial capital limiting country. So I, I just want to say to you, justices, I want to submit to you you ought not to be seduced by the rhetoric of tax avoidance because our policy deals with it. And then behind all of this, uh, all of these, this tax policy, we have a whole arsenal of weapons to make sure that our tax base isn't eroded. We have GAR. So if somebody is inappropriately trying to erode the tax base, we've got the GAR. We have thin capitalization rules. If a Canadian company sets up a subsidiary and there's capitalization, which is intended to shift income, we've got thin capitalization rules to protect it. We've got a whole arsenal of rules that protect our tax base, but don't interfere with the proper functioning of a large, robust, open economy. So the tax avoidance narrative is simply is simply beside the point. And it is very interesting that you have a case before you where the Court of Appeal mentions the word avoidance once, but the Crown's whole case here is about tax avoidance. Why is that? Because the Crown lost the tax avoidance debate in the Court of Appeal, did not appeal it to the Court of Appeal, Justice Woods and her colleagues weren't dealing with tax avoidance. They were dealing with a narrow technical rule and they did their job. And now the Crown says, well, we didn't, you know, tax avoidance wasn't really before the Court of Appeal. It was this narrow issue, but you ought to set their judgment aside and adopt the trial judge's judgment. But if you adopt the trial judge's judgment, you're going to be saying, and this is important, you're going to be saying, well, because of avoidance concerns, we accept the trial judge's judgment. But by the way, the trial judge found there was no avoidance here. It is frankly difficult to 
to square the circle. I want to deal in the short time I have. May I just ask this question? It's a follow-up to make sure I'm understanding. Is this kind of the argument you're making, which is that one of the fundamental objection, objectives behind FAPI is the capital export neutrality? Is that what we're talking about here? I, I know Chief Justice Noel recently has been discussing that in the Federal Court of Appeal. Does that, does that factor in here? You know, um, the, way I, the way I would answer that question, Justice Martin, is that capital export neutrality and that concept was undoubtedly, was undoubtedly taken into account by the Department of Finance and Parliament when they wrote the whole FAPI regime. Remember, we're dealing with a small sliver of it. Right. So when they wrote the whole system, when they wrote a whole set of prescriptive rules, they undoubtedly take, took that into account. One of my colleagues on the, on the team that prepared for this case, you know, we were preparing for this case and she kept saying, you've got to tell them that this is like a sausage factory, the Department of Finance. They sat there around a table and they took in a whole myriad of policy objectives. Our open economy, tax avoidance, competition, capital export neutrality, and they said, we need to reduce these policy objectives to a prescriptive set of rules that uh, taxpayers can apply consistently, reliably, predictably, so that we don't have cases like this. I have just a little over three minutes left, and I will conclude with, with my submission on this point. And it deals with the issue of corporate oversight. Uh, the exchange with my friend about corporate oversight. Look, the trial judge tells us what he means by corporate oversight. He says corporate oversight that, that rendered the, the transaction as being FAPI was this. Number one, he said, Glenn Huron is reporting up to, uh, is sending reports to the parent company. Okay, subsidiaries send reports to the parent company. That, how, do, how is a parent company supposed to prepare its annual report? Uh, do its accounting if there's no reporting. Of course, that's normal commercial uh, supervision. Number two, he said that people from the parent company attended board meetings. Well, of course they attended board meetings. They weren't sitting there as directors. They're sitting there as observers. A parent company employee going to Barbados, attending a, a meeting and sitting there uh, observing and answering questions. What happens if a director at Glen Huron says, you know, I have a question for the parent company on uh, whether we're gonna get capital in the future or whether they have any concerns about us doing that. Of course, it's normal for somebody from a parent company to be there. Number three, he cites the fact that uh, Glen Huron was subject to, uh, to Loblaw's corporate policies on derivative instruments. So Loblaw has a corporate policy that's, that companies can do certain types of derivative transactions. They can't do other types of derivative transactions. Why does Loblaw have that? Why does any multinational have that? Well, because the parent company's job is to make sure that a subsidiary in another jurisdiction doesn't take inappropriate risks so that it blows up the whole enterprise. So it's a risk management strategy. Parent companies set rules for subsidiaries on how much risk they can take. 
The trial judge points to that. And then the last thing the trial judge points to, he just points to four things. He says, and in some of these swaps, there was a term that the, the swap would be collapsed if Glenn Huron ceased to be a subsidiary of Loblaw. Well, why, why would that be present in a swap? Well, it makes complete commercial sense for that to be in a swap because if you're Citibank sitting in New York and you're doing a swap with Glenn Huron, what you want is you want to make sure that the whole corporate balance sheet is available for risk management strategy. Another entirely commercially normal aspect of supervision. So none of the things the trial judge relies on is in any way, shape, or form outside norms of commercial supervision. I, I think my time is up in 17 seconds, and those are my submissions. Could I just I ask you one more question? Uh, and this is probably totally dumb, but paragraph, page 15 of your factum, uh, you talk about a framework for Canadian taxpayers to determine with certainty whether income of a foreign affiliate conducting a financial business is active business income or FAPI. Then you say Parliament enacted specific provisions and safe harbors. Three such provisions which apply sequentially. I, I don't know what you mean by that. The third one that you cite in paragraph C is the 952L, which you put to me. Is that that's a separate and distinct basis as opposed to the first two that you mentioned, or what? What we're saying in that paragraph is that the way the scheme works is you look at this, you look at the income that they're earning. So you look at Glenn Huron and you are testing whether that income is active business income or whether that income is FAPI. That's the purpose of the exercise. And the way the legislative scheme works is uh, you, run, you basically run through those traps. So you go to the first paragraph and uh, it says, if you have this type of income, we are going to deem it to be FAPI and bring it back. So it carves out that income and saying, that's going to get taxed. And then it, it creates exceptions uh, from that carve out. And this, so we're saying that that carve out doesn't apply to us. So none of our income is touched by that. Then we move to the second test in B, and then we move to the third test in C. But Justice Moldaver, your question is helpful in the sense that when we look at the first test, the 95.2.8.3, which says that certain types of income doesn't retain its active business income and carves it out and says that will not be taxed as FAPI, that's not applicable to us because we don't fall in that box. But that carve out, if you look at the legislation, has further carve outs when you are engaged in competition. So even if a taxpayer is caught by that, if they're engaged in competition, the legislation says, okay, because you're engaged in competition, we'll leave it and let you treat it as active business. And the reason that's important here or informative here is because you have a specific legislative scheme that addresses my friend's competition point. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Mr. Williams.
Thank you, Chief Justice. The Canadian Bankers Association sought leave to appeal in this matter, or to intervene rather, because the appellant's interpretation of the arm's length test has the practical effect of undermining Parliament's deliberate and continued intention to allow Canada's largest banks to be able to rely on the financial institution exception that we find in the investment business definition. As we've discussed with my friends earlier today, a foreign affiliate of a Canadian bank that is funded by its parent or subject to group oversight will find itself at risk of failing the arms leg test before we even turn to the business that's actually conducted on the ground. And this is because the impellent interpretation of the arm's length test is built on her assertion that the financial institution exception was never intended to apply to any foreign bank that happened to be trading on its own account. And based on that assertion, the appellant seeks to interpret the arm's length test in such a way as to characterize all such income as FAPI. The problem with that assertion is it is built on a faulty foundation where Parliament sought to characterize income earned by a foreign affiliate trading on its own account as FAPI, Parliament did so with very targeted and specific legislation that operated in such a manner so that non-Canadian source income earned by foreign affiliates of Canadian banks could still be excluded from FAPI. And we start in 1995 at the beginning of this scheme when Parliament specifically turned its mind to a foreign affiliate trading on its own account when drafting the investment business definition. And initially, separate and apart from the arm's length test, the definition characterized income from a corporation whose principal business was trading or dealing in debt obligations on its own account or on the account of a related person, the type of income we're talking about in this case, it treated that full stop as investment business income. And had Parliament's intention been to characterize all such income as FAPI, as suggested by the appellant, that would have done the job. Can I ask, can I ask a question? The, the, yes. For, for a commercial bank, for a foreign affiliate of a Canadian big bank uh, doing business in the Barbados or, or some such place that is actually competing for customer deposits at the receipt end, is that, does that change the dynamic? Does that put that category of bank in a different category than Glenn Huron here? Well, no, it, it shouldn't, because if you're competing for business, uh, then your deposit-taking activities become part of the conduct of your business, and it will then be tested. You'll be doing a different sort of business than Glenn Huron, but that test will still apply where we look to look at that business and say, what the conduct of the business, let's identify the various factors that are part of the conduct, and let's test those. I understand, but the, the receipt, the, the, the distinction between receipt and use... Yes. Which is so fundamental to, to the case that we've heard. Is it different for a commercial bank that competes for deposits for customers in the way that the bank in our case doesn't? They're very different business models that are addressed very specifically by Parliament. And when we look at the amendments that are done in the Income Tax Act, specifically in 2014, I think what Parliament has done there is they've signaled that what they want to do is look at what is happening in the foreign jurisdiction and they want to test that by proxy to the nature of the parent in Canada. They sought to narrow the availability 
of the financial exception. And they didn't do that by looking at the activities that are being undertaken in the foreign jurisdiction, but rather by the nature of the parent in Canada. And in Canada, what they did was they said, okay, prior to 2014, this was allowed, as my friend mentioned, if you have a Canadian Schedule One bank in your group. After 2014, that was narrowed. So that would no longer be sufficient. You needed to satisfy these certain, certain equity rules, $2 billion of such, so the largest banks. But what Parliament was very careful about doing in 2014, in drafting that rule, was ensuring that Canada's largest banks were treated the exact same way on the day after that enactment as they were the day before that enactment. And that is the continued intention by Parliament to ensure that by looking at the Canadian parent as a proxy, we can see, as my friend has said, are we looking at something that is really more of an active business, a bona fide business, or are we looking at something that really is more passive? And initially the rules looked down into the foreign jurisdiction with the five person test and the test regarding the, whether you're regulated. After 2014, the test looks into Canada a little bit more closely and narrows it after that date. Thank you very much. Any reply, uh, Mr. Noble? Mr. Noble, we can't hear you. My apologies, Chief Justice. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes, uh, sorry. Um, just a couple of points in reply. One, uh, to the question that Justice Kassir put to um, Mr. Williams, um, I, I think that uh, the kind of deposit-taking uh, bank that's seeking deposits in a local uh, foreign market that was mentioned um, is uh, different in the sense that the arm's length test uh, likely would not um, um, knock out such a, an institution. Uh, so that, in a sense, the, the example that Justice Kassir put to Mr. Williams is in a, in a slightly different category than the sort of investment portfolio uh, type scenario that we're dealing with in this case. Um, to, uh, to the discussions about 952L, that have come up. Um, we've we've put this into our reply factum, uh, but uh, the the respondent and intervener CBA put emphasis on 952L. But the appellant's position is that this provision is of no relevance in this appeal. Uh, 952L only applies where the taxpayer does not have an investment business and otherwise qualifies for the financial institution exception, and that's the very issue before the court. Um, if the uh, Glen Huron were to uh, satisfy the requirements for the uh, financial institution exception, including meeting the arm's length test, then in some other uh, situation, 952L could potentially apply to uh, treat the CFA's income as FAPI, but that is a question for another day. So I suggest that 952L has no assistance to provide uh, to the court. And then, uh, Finally, the, uh, the reference to the uh, technical interpretation letters uh, that have been mentioned. Uh, 
I submit that the, uh, the respondents and CBA's assertions as to the existence of an alleged long-standing interpretation of the provision are overstated. Um, further, there's, there's no factual foundation for the claims made by CBA about the manner in which the affairs of its members have been structured over the years in, in reliance on a particular interpretation that's, that's uh, been out there. Um, so uh, these are not interpretation bulletin documents intended for general consumption. Um, so I, I, I submit that uh, uh, they don't provide compelling support for the assertions uh, made by CBA. And uh, those are my submissions in reply, Chief Justice. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Council for their submissions. Uh, the Court will take the case under advisement, and the Court is adjourned till tomorrow morning at 10.30. Thank you.